Welcome to Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Voices of Experience podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts. No promotional fees have been paid to anyone appearing on Voices of Experience. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host, and you're probably listening to this on KIXI AM 880 or KKNW 1150 AM. They're simulcast live. And then maybe you're listening to it at a later date on my podcast. But anyhow, we have information that will stand the test of time. That's for sure. Today, we have pollster Stuart Elway back with us. He's been a guest many times. And uh, we're going to talk about the winners and losers or any clear direction that was made by the voters last night, locally and nationally, towards, let's say, politics of the future. Eric, you have a feature today. I do. I'm really happy to have uh, a couple of great guests there coming in from the Lutheran Community uh, Northwest Services. And we're going to talk all about the good work they do in this community in conjunction with a couple of other uh, charities um, and, and organizations. Basically, everything from trying to find foster homes for children from out of the United States who may be teenagers and just need a, a few years at a home. You know, maybe they're from a war-torn country or, or they're just refugees from that country. So that's interesting, all the way up to local housing needs and dealing with the homelessness here. So we're going to talk about things that maybe people can do locally to help. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And talk about their website. And it, it, it's amazing the breadth of what they do. That's the word I came up during, during my interview, because I was like, wow, how do you, when do you sleep? Cause right. you've got a lot going on, but it's all good. Very good. We look forward to that coming up later on the show. Today's meandering musings with Neil Peterson, shuffleboard. Just going to talk about shuffleboard. And again, I'll never look at shuffleboard the same way again after <laughs> Neil's discussion on that. The Andy Rooney of this show. That's what I keep saying. Now, I wonder if oh, people good, know yeah. who Andy Rooney is. I mean, maybe many don't, but certainly he was a fixture on CBS 60 Minutes for so many years. I remember maybe not watching 60 Minutes, but timing it so I'd be down like 10 to 7 or 10 to 8 yeah. when it was wrapping up just to see Andy Rooney or just recording it for that reason. You know, there's like five national voices out there through radio, television, and so on. And he's definitely one of the top five for me. You yeah. hear his voice and it just, it, like you say, it does something. You, I feel smarter after I've listened to him for like 30 seconds. Yeah, and he had just that angle of looking at yeah. things. And I think Neil has some of that as well. Absolutely. Timeless classic for today. Um, everyone has heard of this artist, and I mean everyone. Um, his last number one song, that's what we're going to play today, his very last one. He had 18 number one songs during his career, and I believe that's a record. I don't know, maybe the Beatles did that as well, but anyhow, this, I believe, is number one. And let's see, Voices of History for today. A Bridge Fell Down, 73 years ago yesterday, mm. and it wasn't the London Bridge. I think I got it. Okay, very good. How about you, Eric, the other Eric? Oh, you know where I live, right? <laughs> oh, I think you got it. Okay. So on uh, my episode today with Solopreneur, so people are thinking about going into business for themselves, achieving your full potential. 
And I think there was some really good advice tips that was given by Premier Magazine. And it's along the lines that I think that people should think about going into business for yourself. And by the way, Eric, you like to promote my book. So why don't you take a stab in doing that? Because this book is free for people who call in. People call in and and they are the first caller. Right. So here's what we need to do. If you want to be the first caller to get a book, it's is self-employment for you. Paul has talked about it a lot. A lot of what you hear on Solopreneur, that information comes obviously from that book. But if you're thinking about branching off and doing your own thing, your own business, read this book first. Is self-employment for you? Here's the phone number, real easy. 425-653-1166. When you call, leave your name, your address, and phone number. We'll call to confirm that you were the first caller. But go ahead and do that, 425-653-1166. If you're unlucky enough not to be the first caller, is self-employment for you is found on Amazon. That's correct. All right, so thank you for that. And, yes, we gave out the uh, Voices of Experience message line, 425-653-1166. If you want to also call about anything you hear on the show and would like to add anything of value to it, which I'm sure you can out there, we would love to hear from you, 425 425- 653-1166. Back with pollster Stu Elway in just a moment. All right, we have Stu Elway, and he had a recording I did with him earlier today, and I just want to give a little background about Stu. He has been analyzing public opinion polls since 1975. He's directing research projects across the country for large and small businesses, associations, foundations, federal, local government, media outlets. Outlets. He's really done it all. So I'm always wanting to go to Stu first to get the great analysis as to what happens when elections take place or anything about public policy. So again, I caught up with him this morning and I wanted to talk to him about the election last night. I focused on the Seattle City Council and uh, what his observations are about that. And also, we ended up with some uh, his observations on national politics as well. So this is my discussion with Stu earlier today. Stu, what is your assessment about the election? Let's start with the city council, Seattle City Council. A, a good night for the more moderate candidates. There was a, we'll call them dark blue and light blue candidates. The light blue candidates, the candidates backed by business and endorsed by the Seattle Times are leading in all seven of the Seattle races from by fairly substantial margin. The turnout was low, so we're not sure uh, how that's going to play out. I, I think we won't know really on some of these until probably Friday. Looking at uh, two years ago in the election when there were four races where there was a uh, the progressive and the moderate and the, the, the progressive candidates, the dark blue candidates, made up 12 points from the Tuesday night vote count to the Friday count. So I think there's a lot of votes left to count. There's a couple of races. The 6th district with Hanning and Strauss. Strauss is behind by two. If history were hold, he could very well make that up. The other one is the Wu Morales race in District 2, where Wu was ahead by nine points. If the progressives perform like they did two years ago, that could be very tight, or Morales could even pull it out 
by Friday. The rest of them are sort of out of that range. That's a pretty interesting one there when you make uh, reference to Saka in uh, District 1. That's where I live in in West Seattle. And it was interesting. He lost the primary by a considerable amount, and I didn't expect him to win, let alone be ahead where he is right now. Yeah. Well, the the primaries aren't perfect predictors by any means. There's a a lot more voters in the general than there are in in the primary. Obviously, elections get decided by people who vote, and so <laughs> turnout is, is pretty important on this. The more progressive voters typically have voted late. They they drop their ballots in the mail on Tuesday, and the more uh, moderate conservative voters tend to mail theirs early. Danny Westneed, Seattle Times columnist, suggested today that Seattle voters, it was, it was in his headline, that they've had enough of left experiment and we're moving on to another let's say more centrist area do you agree with that that he can or we can draw from that 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 is occurring based on what we know right now based on these candidate results yes that's a that's a fair assumption and we did a poll of likely voters right after labor day and in that poll 80 percent uh more said they wanted change in the city council now, the biggest change in the council has already happened, and that's uh, Shama Sawan is leaving the council. And I think that that just took the temperature down. Sawant was the face of the council. She was getting the publicity. She was making most of the noise. And with her out of the picture, the council's already getting better for a, you know, a lot of voters. What Danny Westneed said today in his column, he said something about what may be happening here is the voters got really tired of politics by bullhorn. I think they did. Yeah, I think they did. And, and you know, the, the, the issues that people care about, that they've been talking about in, in the last elections and the last polls for several years, are still there. They're still at the top of the list. And that's, you know, policing and homelessness. Seattle voters want sort of a, a all-and approach. I mean, they want... They want to hire more police, but they also want to hire. They also want to give them better training, and they also want to provide diversion and resources, prevent people from being uh, homeless and and uh, on the street doing crime in the first place. So it's it's not a lock them all up, sweep them all away kind of sentiment at all. It is we need to deal with this on on multiple levels, and I think that's what people are voting for. I think it was a big victory for pragmatism. I think it was. I was perusing the paper today, and I just realized before I was interviewing you that I don't know how the housing levy is doing. It's winning big, up by 66 to 34 percent. What happened in Ohio? Did that surprise you? And do you think Democrats generally should be celebrating what happened nationally last night? Ohio wasn't a, a big surprise. I think it shows that the energy behind the uh, abortion issue has not really dissipated. I think there's, there was a feeling that that energy may have been spent. Clearly, the Democrats made hay with it in the last round of elections and are planning to do so again, and the Republicans are hoping that it had uh, dissipated, and it looks like it has not, and the Republicans are going to have to figure out a a way to deal with that issue because the Democrats are coming with it. 
So anyhow, that's uh, Stuart Elway and his observations from the election of the city of Seattle, the council yesterday. And um, I guess there's no huge, major surprises there, but definitely it looks like there's a definite shift shift back to more um, centrist council, which is, I think, a welcome sign. And uh, nationally, I think it's going to be very interesting to look at the impact. uh, You know, I think a lot of pollsters missed how important that abortion issue is. It kind of got shoved back a little bit. And now we see these national elections and Republicans are taking over and it's been all negative about the Democrats. And here we are. Yeah. You know, you get a Democratic governor and reelected in Kentucky and the legislature in Virginia and, of course, Ohio, you know, the constitutional amendment to uh, allow abortions to continue. So it's it's it was just uh, rather interesting. Now, if you want to uh, browse the history of past Elway polls, and he's got a number of them and it's a really good historical read. All you need to do is Google Stuart Elway and that's S-T-U-A-R-T. Elway. Welcome to today's Voices of History. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Safely on the ground, he had barely cut the engine when the crowd reached the plane. They shouted, Lindbergh, Lindbergh. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. Welcome again to Voices of History, and let's get started right now on November 7th, 1940. The Tacoma Narrows Bridge collapses due to high winds. So both Eric's, you both got it. You yeah. both kind of live in the area, but yeah. you probably would have gotten anyhow. I drive over the new bridge three times a week. There you go. At around 11 a.m., concrete began to drop from the a bridge road. Just a minutes later, a 600-foot section of the bridge broke free. So just think Space Needle. Jeez. That all of a sudden comes crashing down. At one time, the elevation of the sidewalk on one side of the bridge was 28 feet above the other side of the bridge, which it was is quite tw- a bit. It was twisting that much. Right. Wow. And I, I think probably everybody has seen this at least a few times. I think I read years ago that, I think it was like a true Washingtonian, if you haven't seen the Tacoma Narrows Bridge vid- video, you, you're not a true Washingtonian. <laughs> at least, I think, like a Get dozen out. times. You know, <laughs> It's like, yeah, you're out of here. you got to uh, follow that uh, test. Let's see, the replacement bridge, after this all happened, opened up on October 14, 1950, after more than two years of construction. Wish light rail would move that fast. It is the fifth longest suspension bridge in the United States right now. And uh, today, the remains of the bridge are at the still at the bottom of Puget Sound. Mm-hmm. And a man-made kind of reef has been formed. It was unclear when I read it as to whether people actually did that or that's just kind of the way it turned out the way it fell but the wreckage has been placed on the national register of historic places and this protects it from having salvagers or scavengers trying to collect pieces of the bridge hmm. wow that's amazing so there's a little fish down there 
Yeah, yep. around and the bridge. Probably have a big lot of octopuses. Homes there. Big I'll octopuses. bet you're right about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, there was a ten-year gap uh, between when it went the original bridge went down and when the new one was built. That must have been pretty frustrating for folks. Yeah, uh, yeah. having been able to just easily cross, you know. Uh, to suddenly have to wait a decade. <laughs> well, and I thought I had a bad one. with the West Seattle Bridge for yeah. two years, but anyhow, <laughs> exactly. Eric? Well, just prior to the the brand new bridge, which, by the way, I thought I thought they did a wonderful job. Just the, I mean, it's a beautiful place anyway. But to sort of mimic the design, since they are side by side bridges, I think that was a, a stroke of genius. But uh, I remember going over the old bridge, and it was a little hair raising because there was no median, you know, there was no Jersey barrier in the middle. Right. And you're just zoom, 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 flying by cars. It's nice that it's one way each bridge now. Yeah, you're talking about the the newest uh, the, version correct, of the bridge that correct. was built in 2007. 2007. Um, yeah, yeah, hard to believe it's already been <laughs> since 2007 when that second bridge opened up. Yeah, for right sure. Now. For sure. I asked a question earlier um, about Galloping Gertie, and I looked it up because I want to know why it got that. And Eric, you had the better explanation on this. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was the uh, the winds. Uh, it, it would shake in the wind <laughs> from the day it opened uh, until it came down. It, it was known for shaking or galloping, if you will. And so that's why they called it hmm. Galloping Gertie. And we discussed just a few moments ago that the engineers didn't go, hey, do we have a problem here? Yeah. Yeah, I think they they said <laughs> the check cleared. The check yeah. cleared. We're it it we're was done. up and they and they thought it would be fine. They thought it would be safe, I think. And until it came down six months after it opened. Yeah, just that quickly. Now, Eric, did I catch it right during the did you say you named your dog? I yep. did. Okay. <laughs> so, I did so name Gertie my dog. Is, is your yep. dog's name? Oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just saw her like walking, kind of galloping. Uh, and I said, that's Galloping Gertie. Oh, there you go. <laughs> great, great story. What kind of dog do you have? She's a beagle mix. Oh, beautiful dogs. How old? Uh, she is 12 now. Wow. That's yeah. the age of my dog. Sadie May. Sadie May. <laughs> so anyhow. And now we go walking uh, at Point Defiance Park where we've got a great view of the new Narrows Bridges. Sturdy Gerties, if you will. Sturdy Gerties. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and we see them all the time, so. Well, I use it a lot myself when I go down to Tacoma Rainier baseball games. For a while there, I was mm-hmm. uh, going from the Fauntleroy Ferry over to Southworth and then going down three over the bridge. I used to do that when there, they used to have ferries out there. But now, I mean, it, in all seriousness, it's because of so many uh, ferries have gone down. I read last week there's a fleet of 21 and seven are out. They're like... Operating on 14. Uh, that's right. Well, you have to deal with yeah, this. Yeah, there's a third. All the time. And I was thinking t- uh, back to a time I lived in Bend, Oregon. And when we left Bend, Oregon, I realized I never took advantage of all the really cool things to see around there because I mm. lived there. It was just like to work home, work home, that kind of a thing. If you live here and you haven't been out on the peninsula or experienced the ocean or checked out like the Narrows Bridge or go down to Tacoma if you live in Seattle and check out the waterfronts there, you need to do that. There's so many cool places here, and it's fun just hopping on a ferry, make a day of it, come across, drive down, go over the bridge, make a loop, yeah. stop for lunch somewhere. Absolutely. It's a beautiful drive. Oh, yeah. I love going down that way versus I-5. Sure. No no question. Travel information, everything, right here on Voices of Experience. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Changing the whole transportation system right here. Anything else happen exciting this week in history? Well, it happened in Mapton. Washington, 
Uh, on November 7th, 1905, the farming community of Mabton, Washington, incorporated just days after the town's business section was struck by a devastating fire. See, another mm. kind of a disaster. Mm. This is disaster day, I guess. It took about 10 years to rebuild Mabton. Oh, wow. All right. So Good one more it. we'll go with. November 5th, 1916, the Everett Massacre massacre occurred. It took place when five members of the Industrial Workers of the World and two deputies died in a hail of bullets as boatloads of wobblies attempted to dock in Everett for a free speech demonstration. So much for free speech. Yeah, wow. Wobblies. I hadn't heard about that. I heard about the wobblies in Seattle a couple times and historically, but not... That was a pretty big deal. I mean, in Absolutely. Uh, November 5th, 1916. So that's all I got today. How's that sound? That was a good was, one. Yeah. And it's a beautiful day out. So, hey, yeah, get outside and enjoy it. Yes, people. enjoy it. You have been listening to Voices of History. If you have historical events that you would like to share, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. All right, so we have Neil Peterson coming up in uh, just a moment of his uh, podcast, which uh, I really enjoy doing. And Neil has just started this. And today we're talking about one of his uh, more interesting subjects, I think. Well, no, they're all interesting. I can't say that. Let's just get right to it. This is Neil, and he's talking about shuffleboards today. There is no greater game in the world than longboard shuffleboard, in my mind. It takes skill, strategy, moxie, and chutzpah to play. A few facts about longboard shuffleboard for those that are not familiar with the sport. On a long, smooth wooden table, 22 feet long, Players rotate shots until all eight pucks have been shot. The players then determine who scored by counting only the pucks closest to the end of the table that are of the same color. Only one color can score per frame. Games are usually played to 15. Longboard shuffleboard means a tremendous amount to me for a reason. Almost 50 years ago, I was a young professional working for state government in Olympia, Washington. The best sandwich place in town was the Brotherhood Tavern. My friends and workmates would frequent the tavern quite a bit for lunch. The tavern had a longboard shuffleboard. I had never seen one before. Myself, along with my friends, started to play a little bit. Little did I know that longboard shuffleboard is a very important sport in Olympia, Washington, especially during the drizzly, overcast, and cool winter months. Almost every tavern in the area has an official shuffleboard team with a captain and teammates. This is taken very seriously. The Brotherhood Tavern had a team in the league, one that was made up of individuals who were seasoned veterans with long histories in the tavern. But one day, something happened that changed everything. Eating lunch that day, the bartender and owner came over to our table and looked straight at me and said, You're our new shuffleboard team captain. He proceeded to tell me and my lunchmates that the tavern shuffleboard team had been beaten badly the night before, so badly that the entire team quit and said no more, no mas. He then added, you better get yourself a team. Flummoxed but unable to resist a challenge, 
I got to work recruiting my friends in state government. None had played seriously before. Most were not used to two nights a week staying up all hours to compete in a shuffleboard league, drinking beer the entire time. In short, we were not in shape for the competition. Nevertheless, we approached the rest of the league season with enthusiasm and energy. We were absolutely terrible. We continually got shellacked by the opposing teams. We had no idea what we were doing, but we had fun drinking, talking, and competing. At the halfway point in the season, we were the worst team in the league of 14 teams. The good news is that for the second half of the season, each team starts with a 0-0 and record. They wipe away the results of the first half of the season and start over. Undaunted, we started to get a little bit better. We started to win a few matches. By the end of the season, we were so proud to come in third in the B division of the Olympia Shuffleboard League. I have never been so proud. At the award ceremony at the local fire station, we received the trophy for coming in third in the B division. As I went up to receive it, I could not believe it. It was the largest trophy I have ever received. It was at least two to three feet tall. And then each one of my teammates and myself received individual trophies. It means so much to me that I have it sitting right next to my sofa in my living room to this day. You know something? I believe Neil Peterson when he says it's an incredible moment and you can see or hear it in his voice, excuse me, how much he feels that way. I mean, Neil's accomplished so much. I mean, the CEO of the Edge Foundation, he's an entrepreneur. He started FlexCar. And which is now Zipcar, you know, and then he's done a lot of other things in his life, author, speaker. But I'm telling you, that tavern and that trophy yeah. that he got in Olympia, <laughs> you can just see, <laughs> it's his proudest moment. I love it. So anyhow, um, by the way, uh, Neil has a lot of these meandering musings, which he has taken from his blog, and you can access, access that by going to Neil's Trips dot com that's n e i l trips dot com or you can do his travel adventures which you're hearing here he's got a bunch more that I've been uh, playing some of them but he's got a lot more and um, musings about the mundane to the extraordinary which you hear here as well meandering musings podcast that's what it's called meandering musings podcast and you can bring these up. All right, let's see. We're going to take a little break here and come back with an interview with Hannah. Every person with a disability deserves equity in education, employment, and their community. Sherwood Community Services takes pride in serving all people with disabilities and their families since 1957, including in rural areas and non-native English-speaking communities. Sherwood provides service in Snohomish, Skagit, and Island Counties. Sherwood is open for referrals for telehealth and virtual support for children and adults with disabilities. To find out more, visit SherwoodCS.com. Sherwood, believing in abilities. Hannah Heimbach is a third-generation commercial fisherman and writer from Alaska. She works as a fisheries policy and communications consultant for Ocean Strategies and is a regular participant in North Pacific Policy and Communications. She lives and fishes on Kodiak Island, Alaska, where she and her partner run a remote fishing operation. So I had a chance to talk to her about Alaska and also about her operations and 
climate change, has she seen any evidence out there being out on the Pacific? And this is what she had to say. Now, you're a third-generation Alaskan fisherwoman. You operate out of Kodiak Island, Alaska, primarily salmon. Is that correct? That's right. So what's a typical day that you have, if there is such a thing? Yeah, so my partner and I spend about four months out on this remote island, right, at a a fish camp uh, on the beach there in Kodiak. Every day we go out in small boats, good weather, bad weather, you name it, um, and we check our nets. We pull fresh salmon out. We put it right on ice and then, you know, deliver it to a larger boat that takes it, you know, to to restaurants and stores around the world. So kind of a wild life out there on the, the edge of the world in the North Pacific. Yeah, you must be very passionate about this because we're talking about shifting into sustainability and you have some ideas for that as well as what commercial fishermen should be doing and also what we as consumers can be doing. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so in its most basic principle, sustainable seafood means that we use environmentally responsible, science-based principles when we fish. It means that we are smart about where, when, how much we're fishing so that we're paying attention to the fish, to the ecosystem it lives in, and making sure that whole system stays really healthy. And this is important. Like you said, I'm a, I'm a commercial fisherman. I do this for a living. I, I harvest wild salmon that goes all over the world. And I'm super proud to have healthy, sustainable food to feed my family and to be able to share that with people across the country as well. And, you know, I, I think it's important to consumers too i love hearing these statistics like research says that 80 percent of shoppers out there care about the healthy ocean and that it's providing healthy seafood this is great it's one of the best ways that we can actually all together watch out for a healthy ocean and it's a big ocean it takes a lot of people working together that's why i really encourage my fellow fishermen to stay involved in sustainability practices i work with folks like the walton family foundation grocers people all over the country that understand that deep connection between healthy food and healthy oceans. What makes a sustainable commercial fisherman and what does not make a sustainable commercial fisherman? I think it's all about being responsive to the ecosystem. I, what makes a sustainable fisherman is, is following the rules. I think accountability is a huge part of fishing. You know, you, you pay attention to how much the ecosystem can handle. You know, what's the right limit to take and when's the right time to fish and when's the right time to stop fishing. So, you know, a responsible fisherman respects those laws and respects the science that's behind them. I think that's kind of the cornerstone of our strong sustainability policies here in the U.S. I think I read something about 30 percent of fishermen observe the sustainability guidelines. There's still a ways to go then. There's a lot of statistics that float around. I, I think that you would have to go fishery by fishery to really look at, you know, how the dynamics are working. I think that we do really well in the U.S. in having a science-based process as a foundation. And sustainability is a journey, right? It's not a destination. It's something that we work on all the time to make sure that we're being responsive to the ecosystem. And how can we do a job as consumers to advocate for sustainability? Well, what can we do? There's actually a lot of power in your purchases, right? You know, you may not live close to the ocean, but you can say, hey, the ocean's important to me by looking for a sustainable label, by understanding where your food comes from, and choosing sustainable seafood. You know, that that's one of the best ways that we as consumers can stay connected to that larger system of sustainability. What evidence have you seen of global warming when you're out fishing or just being Kodiak Island, Alaska? So climate change is something that we're super aware of in Alaska, and, and really 
change is the key word there, right? So sometimes I'll observe fish moving in a different pattern. Maybe temperatures are causing them to go in in different, kind of different migration patterns than they're used to. Maybe the timing of our season changes. We watch a lot of those little ecosystem triggers to better understand the change that's happening. And the most important thing is that we think ahead about how we keep those fisheries, our communities, resilient. You know, how do we pay attention to that change and respond to it appropriately with sustainable policies? Well, you know, I'm just looking or observing from where I sit and I mean, I'm so pessimistic about the future in terms of what you get inundated with the information, the oceans warming up and all these things and migration, as you mentioned, patterns changing. It's the situation's dire. Is it dire or um, what do you think? What are your thoughts on that? You know, I think it can feel that way when you're an individual in one specific little fishery and you experience a big change. It it feels really big and it feels really impactful when you are removed from these places and you just hear about it. It sounds really scary. But you know what? There's a lot of really good work going into understanding and adapting these things. And listen, we've we've got the one planet. Uh, we, We need to address the issues that we see and learn how to live sustainably within that. So are you optimistic, though, we'll be able to do that? I am. I think human beings are resilient and adaptable. We have a lot to learn, you know, as do we all, right? I do think that we are capable of understanding and addressing the change that we're seeing out there, and it, it takes time and focus. So you're uh, optimistic we will do that, and you see examples of that. I do. I do. I see examples of you know, fishing communities and fisheries across the country that are working hard to adapt to those things and, and be responsive to the ocean. And so as long as that intention is out there and there's people that really deeply care about those outcomes and care about those fisheries staying around to feed future generations, I, I believe that we are capable to, to persevere through that. What would be a sustainable seafood plate? I mean, we have so many great options. That's what's great. So I have some Alaska examples I've been working with today. We have halibut, cod, and rockfish. Those are all whitefish that are really, really versatile. You can make all different kinds of things with them. We have salmon here, wild salmon. One of my favorite things to do with any of these is to make a fresh seafood ramen. Super easy. You just need a broth and some noodles, some of your favorite veggies. Spice it up with chili oil and soy sauce. Cook for about 10 minutes and add your favorite seafood for another two. It's cooking. Seafood does not have to be intimidating. And there's actually a ton of options out there that are sustainable, safe, and delicious. So my thanks to Hannah Heimbach, That was great information about sustainability. And by the way, her book is called From Hook to Table, Why Sustainable Seafood Matters. And I think uh, we all realize that. And uh, certainly I learned a lot more about that uh, listening to what she had to say. So again, Hannah Heimbach and her book, again, is called From Hook to Table, Why Sustainable Seafood Matters. And welcome back, and welcome for the first time if you're just tuning in to Voices of Experience. This program airs Wednesdays 3 to 4 live on KKNW and Kixie. Thank you so much for your audience and listenership and telling your friends and family. This program also repeats Sundays at 11 a.m. to noon. Now, if you didn't happen a chance to write all that down, just know that you can pick up the podcast where you pick up all your favorite podcasts. Please download, subscribe, and like. That really helps us out, and we really do appreciate your audience. Check out VoicesOfExperience.com. That's VoicesOfExperience.com to learn all about this program and things like Paul's books, 
is self-employment for you and the pre-flight checklist. You can learn about it all right there, voicesofexperience.com. Well, speaking of Paul, we're getting into the solopreneur portion of this program. And Paul, I would like to know how I could achieve my full potential should I become a solopreneur. Well, Eric, (laughs) I got a lot of work to do. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start there. This is not a therapy session. Okay, but no, nonetheless, uh, that's, you know, very important question. How can, can you go about doing this? And just for the practical matters, I would suggest that think like an entrepreneur, find a niche, always be thinking of finding a niche, something that is being underserved. Maybe, maybe it's something that if you want to be an entrepreneur and you're thinking like one, something that you try to get doesn't work out. There's a shortage of it. It could be something along those lines and go, I can fill that niche. Mm -hmm. The second thing I feel is solving a problem that someone has to get something. Like, for example, I would say this is a big one, but housing, for example. Everybody needs to live in a shelter. Well, you find that niche. It could be small houses. It could be environmental friendly houses. Finding that niche that you can do. There's so many things like that, but that's where you develop the mindset of an entrepreneur. I think one of the biggest myths is follow your passion and the money will follow. Mark Cuban agrees with me on that. And that's why I keep saying it because I've said that along and I heard him say yes. that and I celebrate it. I go, okay, well, he, Mark's done pretty well. Yeah. So, but he said the same thing that that is self-serving being an entrepreneur. That's your passion. What you do is something secondary to that. So enough of that. You're talking about full potential. And what do you uh, Well, you had mentioned things like houses. I I was just thinking back at how um, up until recently, you never really heard the term, you know, staging for sale, you know, staging your home for sale. And suddenly now that's an industry where people will come in and they they can help increase the value of your home by positioning it the best way, the photographs and the Excellent example, Eric. Excellent example. I'm going to end end right there. Yeah, we're done. Okay, voices of experience. Thank you for (laughs) listening. But, but what about this? I mean, one thing that would prevent me, I think, from being a solopreneur is fear of rejection. Honestly, thinking my idea is terrible. Right. And that's a big one. And I think you have to fight through that. No one likes rejection. And I don't think you can ever fight through it because if you don't inherently are one of these people that you know, things just roll off your back. Well, you really can't change that. But you got to also understand that's part of the deal. You may not be able to change it. And you get rejected, you get up and you sell again and you just have to keep moving. And maybe over time it will get less and less, but life isn't perfect. Maybe you will never like to be rejected per se, but you still get up and do it. That's the best advice I have on that. I got it. Uh, How about to, you know, I felt like when I was in business, which was quite a while ago, oftentimes I found myself following other people person's advice. And sometimes it was good. And sometimes it was actually bad. Sure. Uh, I felt like I wasn't listening to my gut, you know, listening to myself. I think that's very important is that actually I've learned that too. And I don't have time to go into how I've been burned when I didn't do that. But there were two times that I was that my gut told me that this wasn't something I'm that feeling really good about. And those two times it almost cost me my business. Mm. I was very lucky to survive it, but it was a pretty devastating setbacks both time. And so I'm saying when both of those times, my gut told me not to do this and I did it. 
So I'm saying it's very important. If you think that something isn't right here, trust it. Well, part of this, obviously, this section is called solopreneur, and, and the key word there, I think, being solo. It's tough when you're solo in something uh, because it's almost like you're in an echo chamber in your head about things. Mm-hmm. Can't that be dangerous? I mean... Yeah, you have to have a mentor. I think I've mentioned several times that I had one, Larry Kaufman, late Larry Kaufman. And I went into publishing, and he was somebody I could always bounce things off. I, when I say solopreneur, that, I'm glad you brought that up because you're not alone in this world. I mean, you need a lot of people. And when I'm submitting solopreneur, it doesn't mean you have to maybe hire a bunch of people and, and have them employees. You can you know, uh, contract out a lot of work, too. But you need help. So that could be a little misleading. I'm glad you, glad you brought that up. Well, and I imagine that you have to be flexible and you have to change with the times. I think about Sears and Roebuck. I mean, they used to always go there, and now they're, they're, they're not around. They're gone. Right. They weren't flexible. They didn't change. Right. Definitely. Uh, I went from publishing, you know, newspapers, and I'd like to say that I had all this vision that newspapers would get into trouble. I just didn't care for the newspaper business per se. It was too much work. And found the future in radio. Of course, now radio's got its challenges. But, of course, social media and other things that you have to evolve into. And so, yes, you have to be lean and mean and, you know, flexible on your feet. Excellent uh, advice. Learn more about this and so much more about being an entrepreneur, in this case, solopreneur, at VoicesOfExperience.com. All right. So, Eric, let's get into your interview. Sounds great. Let's welcome to the studio two very special guests. We're going to talk about the Lutheran Community Services Northwest, the work they do, and the people they help right here in our community. In studio, I have Susan Nocella. How are you doing, Susan? Great, thank you. Really appreciate you being here. You're the program director for Santa for Seniors. Yes. We'll learn a little bit about that as well. And also, right across from you, I have Joseph Fry, your associate district director of Greater Puget Sound for, again, Lutheran Community Services Northwest. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you both taking your time and the drive. I understand you had to come up from Tacoma. Thank you so much for coming up. Let's get right into the conversation. Susan, I'm going to direct the first question to you. Why don't you just give some background about Lutheran Community Services Northwest? Yeah, so LCSNW, as we call it, um, actually celebrated their centennial in 2021. Okay. So we're over 100 years old. Um, We have offices in Washington, Oregon, and Idaho, where we partner with individuals, families, and communities to provide health, justice, and hope. Uh, Specifically in Western Washington, in our greater Puget Sound District, we provide support, guidance, and stability for at-risk children and youth. We provide services to refugees and uh, immigrants, uh, seniors, people with disabilities, people facing mental health challenges, addiction, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, we affiliated with Compass Housing last year to provide more housing resources. And we also have some community resource centers. We've got two in Port Angeles and SeaTac. We have one in Everett that opened in May, and we're opening one up in Bremerton in late November, December. And those all provide food, diapers, clothing, other community resources, counseling to families and youth in those communities. And then we have the Santa for Seniors program where we focus specifically on our isolated and homebound seniors, providing 
acknowledgments, creating bridges to resources and intergenerational connections. When I think about the breadth of work you do, it's amazing. I was on your website and I was thinking, how is there enough time in the day to do all this? I mean, the need is certainly there, isn't it? Absolutely. And of course, with Santa for Seniors, season's Mm -hmm. coming up, so that's going to become very popular. What's been the biggest challenge for you personally in the position that you have there, working with, again, the breadth of this work, the need that's out there in our community? It's really the geographic reach. Um, There's the need for reaching seniors. Um, There's a lot of pockets of isolation, a lot of pockets of low resources. So it's trying to help facilitate getting those resources to the seniors and the different geographical locations. We're actually in 14 counties and two states this year. Amazing. Amazing. Joseph, do you want to talk a little bit more about some of the specific programs that she had mentioned? Yeah, and you're definitely right. The breadth of work that we provide and the services that we provide here in this community, they require a lot. They require a lot of resources. And two of the programs that are, are very near and dear to me amongst those are really our focus on youth services. So we have um, two very unique programs, one that is kind of newer to us and is expanding and growing into Snohomish County, and that's our uh, wraparound intensive services for youth. And then we have another program, our unaccompanied refugee minors work, and we've been doing that work for, for decades um, and so these, these are uh, programs I'd like to highlight both because of the longevity and, and some of the newness and expansion. So in our unaccompanied refugee minors, um, we're really focused on providing uh, clinical, mental health, social services um, to refugee minors who have come here. Um, they're usually around 16 years old all mm-hmm. the way up until they're 21. And we provide some, you know, some very um, unique and uh, encompassing services. This program really relies on our um, on foster homes. So we have communities, uh, homes, people in the community actually uh, act as foster homes for these refugee minors, and we really, really need more foster homes right now. So that's a big, uh, you know, kind of a big call to us as a community. Can we help these these refugee minors? They're from Africa, East Europe. Central and South America, we, we get them from all over, and they have some really, really amazing stories. And these foster situations, are, are we talking months or, or years, or is it just sort of all over the place? It can vary, sure. It's, it's uh, you know, there is some variety in that, but a lot of the times the bonds and the fit that we, we build um, with these minors and with our foster families are incredible. Um, you know, they can, if they come over when they're younger, they can stay with these families all the way till they're 21 years old. And it is, it is literally, they become family. Right. So these are, these are lifelong relationships. That and are probably forged. life-changing yes. for everybody involved. Yes, absolutely. Speaking of which, Susan, could you relay maybe a story or two that, that has affected you personally, just in the work that you've done? I think two that always stand out to me year after year. The first was a senior that it was one of the first years of the program, the Santa for Seniors program. And we uh, provided an acknowledgement um, through our Meals on Wheels program. And when the driver went back the next week, this wonderful, sweet woman invited him in, you know, sat down, he visited and noticed that there was a Christmas tree that hadn't been there the year before. And she explained that she had asked her caregiver to go out and get a small tree and help her decorate. She had not celebrated Christmas 
or the holidays in seven years. Wow. Even though she had family around, they weren't interacting with her. They weren't, she wasn't a part of their lives. She was really alone, you know, and interacting just with her caregiver. So that really just made a huge impact. There was another, a couple of years later, there was another gentleman who was part of our dementia services programming. Um, and there's a program specifically for early stage memory loss and social engagement. And he was a recipient of an acknowledgement and fell in love with this blanket. And he took it everywhere, including when he mm. was going through cancer treatment, that he could have this yeah. tangible item that really brought him comfort in whatever situation he was in. Joseph, it seems to me that, you know, when you do sort of the laundry list of all the needs out there in our community, what really gets lost is the human aspect behind it. As you just said, Susan, that beautiful stories, by the way. How about you? How has it affected you personally in the work that you do? Yeah, that's a great question. I think very early on in my in my professional life, I knew I wanted to be involved in something that was much bigger than just myself, much bigger than earning money, right, or mm-hmm. being able to provide for my immediate needs. I wanted to be involved in something that was giving back to the community I was in, in a, in a very tangible way that we could see. And so I think, you know, those stories of impact are, are what get me going every morning. Um, the, the way that we get to interact with humans and see a very real life-changing effect, you know, through the services we provide is what brings uh, myself and so many I know in my team to work every day. We get to do the best thing in the world, and that is uh, watch people's lives change and see smiles uh, arise on people's faces. It's amazing. That's a wonderful thing, and I think our audience could also experience that through helping. What are some ways that you would like our audience to get involved in the good things that you're doing? We're always, always in need of volunteers, and we have a lot of ways that folks can volunteer, too. If you feel like you don't have the time maybe to personally go out and invest in, in, in that way, we always have the ability to accept donations. And so we also rely very heavily on public donors um, for a lot of the work that we do to keep those things funded, like our community resource centers, et cetera. And if you want to look for opportunities to actually work with us and for us, um, you can also, um, you know, we have a lot of employment opportunities. So you can go to LCSNW dot org and that will take you to the landing page where you can donate you can find out about all of our programs and services where our offices are located get involved with us thank you both for your time really appreciate you being here i'm going to give that out again lcsn is in nancy w dot org that's lcsnw dot org learn how you can get involved and change a life yourself All right, that's all the time we have, unfortunately, today. We've had such a good time here. Hope you have, too. We do have a winner of the book. He left his phone number. It's a 360 area code. You didn't leave your name if you're still listening, but I will call you shortly, and we'll get everything figured out there. Um, Let's see. What is going on at the end of the day today? I'm just going to say thank you to Stu Elway and Hannah Heimbach and also to Neil Peterson, Eric Crema, Eric Ryder, and Betty Mathers for help pulling this show all together. Quote of the week. Someone asked me, if I was stranded on a desert island, what book would I bring? Any guess? How to Build a Boat. (laughs) Stephen Wright. Good one. This week's Timeless Classic is coming up next, only on Kixie. You'll hear the whole song. You'll hear part of it on KKNW AM 1150. 
and you will not hear it on my broadcast because of licensing issues. Have a great rest of the week. This week's Timeless Classic is about a mistrusting and dysfunctional relationship. It was written by a Mike James and first recorded in 1968, but the song didn't do too well. The new version of the song was the product of a different artist and different session that took place between 4 a.m. and 7 a.m. on Thursday, January 23rd, 1969. Now, how is that for trivia? Parade Magazine said at the time, This song is one of the most innovative arrangements of all time, and certainly by the famous artist who sang it. There was a jangling electric guitar, spiraling strings, pumping horns, a barreling backup choir, and it all worked. It was this artist's 18th and last number one single. From 1969, Suspicious Minds by Elvis Presley. What you do? 